You're listening to The Bob Sadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. We are this morning and always the show of ideas, never once the show of attitude. Uh, This morning's show, I guess, is kind of coming attractions. Remember when there were movie theaters and you had coming attractions and you were warned the following uh, preview is rated PG or rated whatever they rate these coming attractions as. Well, this is coming attractions as to what's in store for us if the Democrats win uh, three branches of government. It is about the government at its most protective. The government uh, that we are looking forward to, indeed, that we are experiencing today in certain parts of the country, the government today is protecting all of us from what? We are being protected from our freedom. Because if we dare to exercise freedom, like how we earn a living, we will... uh, waste away our lives, waste away our monies, and that decision about how we spend our workday is simply too important to be left to us to decide. So government has to protect us from the freedom to decide how to earn a living. And this morning's show is about being protected from ourselves, being protected from our free choice about who we work for, how we work, the hours we work, and what we do. And to help us understand this important issue, I am delighted to welcome to the show Kim Cavan. Kim is a, uh, is a working journalist. She's a freelance writer. She is significant to this morning show. She is co-founder of the uh, coalition called Fight for Freelancers New Jersey. And she's also professionally a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. She is widely read. She writes about a wide range of topics, including uh, she writes for many yachting magazines, and she wrote a book in 2016, still available, called The Dog Merchants. Why is Kim on the show this morning? Because Kim is experiencing government attempting to deny her a livelihood. Yes, denying her a livelihood, protecting her from her own decision about how to earn a living. This story started in its recent history in California. It is spreading like wildfire, like wildfire in blue states, ab initio, but maybe more states to follow. And breathlessly trying to catch up our bills in the United States Congress to accomplish the same denial of freedom to earn a living. We are talking about, in the broad sense, the gig economy and all of the legislative act and judicial activity seeking to deny workers the freedom to work as independent contractors for the large number of gig economy participants, you know about Uber, you know about Lyft, you know about Postmates, you know about TaskRabbit, all of these services that help us 
as consumers connect up with those people who want to serve us for a price they are happy to receive. So this is so important because it is happening today and already we are promised, if promised is the right word, we are promised that if Biden uh, ascends to the White House and if the Democrats take control of Congress, what we are talking about this morning will for sure be the law of the land. So, Kim, we are going to discuss this morning your being denied the freedom to earn a living. Now, give us the big picture of what the topic is, and then we're going to drill down. Tell us why you, as a freelance journalist, happily doing what you love to do and doing it at a price you're willing to accept, how are you being denied the right to earn a living? Well, good morning, Bob. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, as you said, this really, the issue really came to light in California with AB5, and a lot of the media has been about what you just said, people like Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and things like that. But what they're finding since that law went into effect in California on January 1st is that the way it's written doesn't just affect those kinds of people. It actually affects people in more than 300 professions that have been identified so far. Everybody from uh, courtroom interpreters and respiratory therapists. Uh, just last week, there was a pharmacist with a PhD who was thrown out of work because of this thing. Um, and now, Kim, let me I just, Kim, if I may, let me. I, yeah, go ahead. Kim, if I may, let me let me just interrupt, just so the audience understands what the it is and what AB five is—a phrase which is common to you and I, but may not be so common to people around the country who are listening this morning. And I'm just going to give a very, very brief non-legal summary of what this is all about. AB five is uh, a bill passed by the California legislature. It's the law in California. New York and New Jersey and other states are considering similar legislation. So this show is by no means about California. It is about the country. And what AB5 does by statute, and it has a, a judicial history that's not so relevant to this morning's show, what AB5 does basically uh, it says that drivers for Uber and Lyft and, as Kim will explain, hundreds of other uh, activities, these employees, and I'm using the word employees in a very broad sense, uh, these workers, a better phrase, what they do is they are independent contractors. They, if you will, uh, get paid uh, by the hour or by the something, whatever the term is. They are not employees. They are paid a fee. They pay their own Social Security taxes, and they are not. They do not contribute to unemployment insurance funds or Social Security funds. Um, they deal with it as independent contractors. And in exchange for being independent contractors, they get to work the hours they want. They work for two hours a week or 200 hours a week, whatever they want. They have the freedom to work when they wish, which means the activity works beautifully if you have a complicated life, you have 10 hours a week you want to spend making money, and no one's going to hire you as an employee for 10 hours a week, so you work in this massive 
activity in many in hundreds of, of industries. You work on the hours you want to work. You set your own hours, and um, you are told what you will get paid for an hour. If you don't like it, you simply say, I'll pass on being an Uber driver. I'll do something else. So you are independent contractors. Emphasize the word independent. And the California legislation says, no, no, you may think you're an independent contractor, but we, we decide by statute you're not. Therefore, you're an employee. You must work for 40 hours a week, unemployment insurance, benefits, social security benefits, all these benefits. You become a full-time employee, and the whole flexibility, the whole business model fails. Now, there are so many industries that rely upon that as to how they function. Kim will explain. That's what the fight is all about. Sorry, Kim. Now... Please go on with your story about right. how you many know, different so industries in are case, affected. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're, you're homing in on it. And, and in my case, so I was a daily newspaper editor and a magazine, a national magazine editor for about a decade. So I know what it is to be a full-time company employee in, in the publishing industry. What I decided almost 20 years ago now is that I could make more money and have a better life if I simply became an independent contractor and offered myself up as a freelance writer and editor to all kinds of different magazines and newspapers. And I have never looked back. I, like I said, I did a decade as a staffer. I know what that was like. I experienced all things that a lot of women experience in the workplace with glass ceilings, and you know, you know you're never going to even be considered for the top jobs. But as an independent contractor, I not only have all the flexibility you described, I work when I want to work, how I want to work, for whom I want to work, but I actually make more money than I ever made in some of the top jobs at those publications. And even throughout the pandemic, what we've seen is with our friends and our colleagues who are still staffers, a lot of them got furloughed and laid off uh, when the pandemic hit. People like me, yeah, we took a dip. Some of our clients pulled back on their freelance budgets, but I, I never lost all my income in one shot. And I can maneuver and move around and find other work in other places. So for people like me, it's about way more than 10 hours a week. This is how we pay the bills. I mean, and it's not just me. There was a big report that the IRS put out last year that showed that since the year 2001 in this country, the number of women who are also independent contractors, who are the breadwinners in their family, it's up 90%, Wow, so the, the wow. The notion that this is just about a guy picking up 10 hours of work a week with Uber, that is not what this is ultimately about. The, the rotten core of these bills, like the one that California already passed, the one that we so far have stopped in New York and New Jersey and that we're trying to correct at the federal level, the rotten core of these things takes our labor laws back to the 1930s when people like us were not allowed to exist. It drags us backwards. That is what we are fighting against. And what's interesting is the legislation purportedly, the political cover uh, that Lorena Gonzalez, who is the a member of the state assembly, regretfully from San Diego, um, has always said she, her legislation was designed to protect workers from being exploited. The most absurd label one can imagine. How could somebody be exploited when a new business model is created and Uber goes out into the into the world and says, okay, we have this business model. If you want to participate, 
sign here, and you can work whatever hours you want. There was no compulsion. There's no company town. Nobody is being compelled. How can that possibly be exploitation when an opportunity is created in the gig economy that didn't exist before, and workers say, wow, that works for me. Where do I sign? How could it possibly be exploitation? Yet, haven't you found in your campaigning, uh, Kim, uh, against the bill, that the, isn't that a substantial portion of the political cover, and isn't it utterly hypocritical? It is definitely what a lot of the people supporting the bill have been led to believe they're doing. Uh, they have been told that if they enact this, they're going to help people who are struggling. And that's a, that's a good impulse to want to help people who are struggling, right? In, you, know, so you see someone struggling, you want to help them. But the there's two things I would say in terms of whether independent contractors are actually being exploited. One is that in every study we can find, and serious studies, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department, the Internal Revenue Service, ADP Research, Intuit, and Gallup, and these are studies released just up until a couple months ago, right before COVID hit, 70 to 80% of independent contractors routinely say they want to stay independent contractors. They like their lives the way they are. That does not sound to me like people who are being exploited, not even a little bit. The other thing I would say is if you're being exploited, it means you're being denied something, right? You're not, you're not getting your fair due. All of these studies show that independent contractors make as much, if not more, money than people in similar roles in traditional workplaces. The most recent study that came out that Gallup did said we're actually happier as independent contractors working in just one field than someone with a traditional job in just one field. So the notion that we are some that somebody like me is is in a bad place, I, I just can't understand that. I we understand that in certain professions which tend to be unskilled, low-paying things like janitorial, house-cleaning, things like that. Is there an opportunity to cause harm to low-paying, underskilled, undereducated people? Sure there is. Should government agencies go after corporations that do that and exploit people that way? Of course they should. But when you write a law the way that these laws are being written, they can't tell the difference between people like that and people like me. So it wipes out everybody. The best line I saw about that was in the New York Times. Somebody said, this is like trying to kill a cockroach with a cannon. You're blasting away the middle class. That's what this is. And what's interesting is, let's take Uber and Lyft, which were really the targets, the starting point. They were like in the eyes of the legislature. They were the exploiters, uh, although they were as... As Kim has said, there are hundreds of occupations that are structured around this model. But focusing on Uber and Lyft, if you are, if you wish to spend your day uh, driving a car, moving other people around, and being paid to do it, and if you want full-time work and you want security, there are plenty of opportunities. Then sign up for a cab company as an employee. You have that choice. But if, you, on the other hand, you find the 40-hour work week and being an employee and not having the freedom to be unappealing to you, now you have 
freedom, as I said in the introduction to this topic. All it does is it gives people an option. How could that possibly be exploitation? You're not. Well, this is what Uber's it's trying not to the prove, only right? And did you see the study that came out last week, Bob, from Cornell University about Uber and Lyft specifically on this? I did not. It, it was just released on uh, the first week of July. What Cornell University's researchers did was they got hold of all the data from inside Uber and Lyft. They went into the apps to look at what the drivers were actually doing and how much money they were making. It was, it was a study of just Seattle, um, but they, it was the first time ever that anyone had looked at, they call it microdata this way. What they found was that 9 in 10 of the Uber drivers in Seattle and Lyft drivers were making more on an hourly basis than the taxi drivers. 92% of them were earning more than the Seattle minimum wage. The median driver after costs was earning just shy of $50,000 a year, which is way more than taxi drivers. It was, it was just shy of this median for all Seattle occupations. And 96% of those drivers were working less than 40 hours a week. Does any of that sound like exploitation to you? Of course not. And even, even more absurd is, remember, Uber and Lyft, for whatever reason, reason have not made a profit yet. Therefore, they are not the ones who are profiteering. They are, cannot be exploiting workers and underpaying them and keeping all of the money for themselves because they're not even making a profit yet. So, and the, the only ones who benefit and the ones who are always supposed to benefit are the consumers. The consumers get to have flexible services available when they want it at a price they are willing to pay. So this is simply a question of the marketplace almost purely dictating the value of the time of an Uber driver. And if Uber drivers do not make enough, they will not sign up. They will say, this is a crappy way to spend a day. I'm not making enough. Kim's statistics are wrong, and I'm going to do something else. Uber will not have enough drivers. They will have to increase their cost to consumers to keep the model alive. The drivers will get, again, the market. So, in effect, what Uber does, in a manner of speaking, is create this almost perfect marketplace for service. Rather than have it being dictated, the price being dictated by the legislature, it is dictated pure and simple by the market. And the market operates at two levels. If it's too low, if the drivers don't make enough, they will not show up. Uber will fail. If Uber... Uh, does not pay the drivers enough uh, and keeps the profit, they will run out of drivers. And if the service is too high, consumers will not pay. And again, the model will fail. So the marketplace will give all the information anybody needs about whether the business model will succeed. And so, so that's what the fight is all about. Now, I've mentioned Uber because Uber is always, Uber and Lyft are always, uh, ground central for this fight. But Kim, I would like you to help our friends out there understand how widespread the model is. There is, There are, as you started to explain, I'd like you to expand that, hundreds of activities that operate in this uh, structure. And how and so many people, well, well, well beyond Uber and Lyft drivers and Postmates, etc., uh, are dependent upon this 
model for their livelihood. Give us a sense of how broad this business model is in the economy, because most consumers don't see it. No, you don't realize when it's happening. But, you know, like they said, they've identified more than 300 professions so far. The total number of people this affects, it depends on whose data you want to believe, uh, how you want to define an independent contractor or a self-employed person. But everything from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics to the more recent surveys by specialized private organizations, they tell us that there's somewhere between about 10 and 50 million Americans that are working this way, either a couple hours a week or people who do it like me, and it's the way they earn their entire living. So when you write a law that affects all independent contractors, you're smashing quite a lot of people who don't deserve to be smashed. You know, even California's own legislative analyst's office, when they did a study of this back in February, they came out and said that in California alone, they think this is going to hit about a million people, and probably very, very few of them will actually be helped by it. They're going to be hurt by it. That was the government's own analysis of this thing. So if you extrapolate that and go all across the country, you know, you're talking about people like, let's say you are, you are a sign language interpreter. You help people who are deaf to communicate with people who do not speak sign language, right? You're an interpreter. And let's say you do that for the courts, where someone who has a hearing impairment is before the courts, they need an interpreter to help them navigate the court process. Well, the courts have a list of sign language interpreters who on any given day can go to any different court around their state and do this job, which is a very necessary job for inclusiveness in our legal system and our processes. Well, those, pers- those people doing the interpreting are independent contractors, right? They don't work for just one court. They aren't an employee of just one town. It doesn't make sense for just one town to employ a person like that because they don't have a full roster all day long of people who need that service. It's a service they need once in a while. So the interpreter sets herself up as her own business. She's a self-employed person running her own business, going from court to court. These are some of the people being thrown out of work right now because of the way these laws are written. The same thing's happening to writers like me, uh, people who do freelance editing, which I do as well. You know, there's plenty of magazines who need maybe eight or ten hours a month, not a day, not a week, a month of help with editing copy for their publication. Are they going to pay someone a full-time 40-hour-a-week wage to do eight hours a month of work? No, that doesn't make any sense. But for somebody like me, you string together a couple of those magazines, well, all of a sudden you've got a pretty good full-time job, and if you can make a couple hundred bucks an hour doing that, you're no different from a specialized lawyer or accountant. So, again, we're not talking about exploitation with the majority of independent contractors. We're not talking about people who are low-skilled with a lot of independent contractors. We're often talking about really highly skilled people who are simply choosing to work for themselves because that's what's best for the marketplace and that's what's best for us as individuals. Does that make sense? And so, of course it makes sense. It makes sense to all of us. And I'm reminded of um, uh, Ronald Reagan's very famous comment, the most dangerous words you can ever hear is, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Uh, ooh, <laughs> gives me the willies. Um, so, uh, so the government now uh, has stepped in to protect 
uh, allegedly to protect, quote, exploited workers. Now, I should also mention as we go to the break, uh, Kim, I'm not aware of any uh, groundswell of complaints by the dro- by the people being quote protected from their own freedom. There never was in California, job. yeah, or elsewhere. Nobody was crying out for help. Nobody was organizing unions. Nobody was organizing ad hoc coalitions. Help us, protect us from Uber or Lyft. They were, and my experience was anecdotal grateful for the opportunity. They were given uh, somebody who was traditionally driving a cab as an employee now gets to set their own hours, determine, drive their own car, interact with consumers, and have all of the every, all of the other work, all of the back office work done for them. So there was no, no, there was no crying out for help. It's not like some... Uh, Journalists discovered exploitation, blew the whistle on the whole ugly mess, and legislature jumped in. They, the history of this, as we go to break, was there was a California Supreme Court case called Dynamex, which uh, the state Supreme Court of California, in effect, in a, in a ruling citing legislation and tradition that goes back to the 1930s, it it set forth this standard of restrictive standard of independent contractor. So the state Supreme Court did it, and the legislature said, wow, that's a cool idea. And they said, let's codify it in legislation. So they took the, the, the California Supreme Court, started with a very old um, body of law. They cut, they made a ruling in the state Supreme Court, legislatures jumped on the bandwagon. So that's what gave birth to this whole process. It was not the discovery of an area that needed legislation. This was an invention of the legislature. Now, when we come back from our 30-second break, Kim, I'd like to explore with you the real motivation, how this is driven by unions, how this is driven by the the bloodlust of government for more tax revenue and more control. It's not about protecting workers. That's the political cover. It is about something a little less pleasant and a little less protective of us all. This is Bob Zedek. I'm speaking with Kim Cavan. We are discussing Kim's wonderful article in Reason Magazine, quote, I don't want to be anybody's employee. And Kim, neither do I. We'll be back in 30 short seconds. I'm Bob Zadig, broadcasting here every Sunday morning at 8. Remember the free speech movement? Started in Berkeley in the 60s. At Berkeley today, students protest against free speech and picket when a controversial, usually conservative speaker is scheduled. At other top universities, professors are terrified of their students. The free exchange of all ideas has disappeared. My new book, The Bubble, explores how higher education became America's most overrated product. Students spend four critical years of their lives in an expensive bubble of indoctrination, and they're creating a second bubble in the process. Luckily, a small, dedicated minority is fighting back against repressive campus speech codes and disinvitation campaigns. Learn how universities have created a bubble within a bubble, a trillion-dollar financial bubble in student loan debt propped up by a bubble that protects from offensive speech. Now some are even suggesting student loan forgiveness. It's time to burst the bubble. 
Facebook, now available at BobZadek.com. Welcome back to the Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show on all of radio. This morning we are speaking with journalist Kim Cavan. Kim has written a wonderful article in the recent issue of Reason magazine entitled, quote, I don't want to be anybody's employee. And Kim, those are very, very praiseworthy, freedom-loving attitude, which I 100% endorse. We are talking about Kim's battle against the legislative attempts California succeeded so far, attempts in New Jersey with Kim will share with us her experience fighting successfully the New Jersey legislature, uh, the experience in New York, which is backed off a little bit, and in Washington. Now, Kim, um, we're going to discuss government motivation in a second, because while they're using protecting workers from their own freedom as the political cover, uh, their their motivations are a little more unpleasant than that. But before we do that, Kim, because the story is so interesting, there you are, a journalist, writing about yachting, having the time of your life, earning a living, writing about what you love to write about, and all of a sudden you become, who would have thunk it, an activist. Tell us how that all happened. <laughs> A friend of mine here in New Jersey, a fellow freelance writer, put up a post on Facebook that said, holy bleep, California's AB5 is coming to New Jersey. And we all knew what that meant because we're members of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, which had been trying to fight this in the state of California and trying to sound an alarm bell and saying, whoa, 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 they're talking about Uber in the news, but this hurts people like us. And so when we realized back in November that it was coming to New Jersey, too, all we knew was, you know, I couldn't have told you how to look up a bill on the state legislature's website back in November, but all we knew was that we had to stop it. And we very quickly became the loudest voices in the state attempting to do that. Well, you're a journalist, so of course you know how to uh, work the system pretty well because they had access to the media. And I guess what happened was the legislature discovered they kicked a beehive when they started to threaten the livelihood of journalists because they they have direct access. People who make media for a living, and we got very angry (laughs) about that. Um, and, and to your point, actually, before the break, we all went to testify here in New Jersey uh, back in early December about this. And it was a packed, packed, packed legislative hearing, a big, big room. Um, it was the kind of thing you see in the movies, just people flooding in by the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. Not a single one of them was an Uber or Lyft driver who was asking for help. The testimony went on for more than four hours here in New Jersey about this bill in December. There was only four people who testified in favor of it. One was the sponsor of the legislation, who news reports say makes about a quarter million dollars a year from the unions. One was a top director of the AFL-CIO here in New Jersey. You know, it was, it was just people tied to the politics of it who wanted it. The actual real people in the room people of all colors, all genders, all kinds, everyone from truckers to musicians to bakers, everyone standing up that was a real person to talk about this bill was there to scream no. Now, uh, here's kind of a personal question. You can fudge it if you want. Um, Obviously, I presume uh, that um, 
the first article you had posted in a libertarian magazine, in this case, Reason, a magazine that I read cover to cover, the second it comes out, and I commend it to all of our listeners, although I shouldn't have to, they probably all read it, but was that the first article you had published in a libertarian magazine? It was, and it's obviously not the first article I've ever published in my life. I'm a writer, so you, you Google me, you get, I don't know, of course. 40,000 results or something, but on this topic... We've been, uh, my fellow writers and I, we've been able to get op-eds and articles published in quite a lot of places um, as wide-ranging. You know, out here we had them in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Washington Post, all the big New Jersey papers. You know, we've, uh, one of our writers got one into Parents Magazine. We've been able to do that. But generally speaking, the, the, the traditional media they, they seem to be covering this from the Uber angle, which really frustrates us, which is why we're trying to raise our voices so loud. They don't, they don't seem to grasp just beyond the, the basic talking points about Uber what this is really all about. So that's what we're trying to do when we raise our voices. So, um, and would you call the, the writer's group, could you generalize, or is that utterly absurd, what their, what the, overall political orientation is, if there is one, are they apolitical, is there a clear focus, or is that not even discussed, it is a single, um, your organization is, for the minute, a single issue organization designed to accomplish a very specific legislative goal? We're, we're definitely the latter, and we are nonpartisan. With that said, though, we, we set up separate Facebook groups that are all well over a thousand people now. Some are a couple thousand people now. Uh, we, they exist in New Jersey, New York, other states where this was threatened, uh, Illinois, Massachusetts. We are coordinating with a group called California Freelance Writers United out in California. If you look at the makeup of all these groups, you see this really amazing thing that something like 70% or so of these groups are women. And when we started to notice that, that was when we started to realize how closely the idea of independent contractor work is tied to women wanting control and a work-life balance and to get rid of the glass ceiling and to get all the Me Too stuff out of the way that you have to endure when you're an employee. All of that goes away. Um, so when we realized it was so many women, that was when we went looking for the data and statistics and found out that we are the data and statistics. Women do flock to this kind of work. In terms of political affiliation, we don't ask people what their politics are, but I can say just from kind of talking to people, they tend to lean a little more liberal. We certainly have conservatives and Republicans in our group. We, we absolutely have liberals and progressives and Democrats in our group. We have independents in our group all different kinds of people, but we all agree that this legislation is idiotic. That is where we all come to a point and agree, which is really a beautiful thing, if you think about it, in America right now, that people can come <laughs> together in a place and put their other politics aside and just say, this is wrong. People should be able to work how they want to work. So we don't focus so much on politics, no. but there are Democrats who are members of our group for sure, and they're just as angry about this as the Republicans. Now, the question has to be asked only because um, it's forced upon us. Uh, there is a bill in Congress called PRO, I think it's called PRO Act. There's an acronym for something or other. I don't know the acronym. Yeah, protecting uh, which the is designed organized is what that stands for. Uh, organize equals unions. Hmm. 
I wonder if that's a coincidence. Um, so we have this pro-bill in Congress, and we have Joe Biden has as a specific element in his platform uh, that he would support AB5 on a national level. So uh, if you can give us an insight um, at all, because of course, National politics is upon us. We have a presidential election coming up in a few months, so you can't avoid having a conversation, at least in part, on national politics. So to what extent um, does does this issue or might this issue affect uh, those, affect women, affect independent contractors across the board who might otherwise be loyal Democratic voters, you know, in the fold, if you will, and maybe routinely uh, vote Democratic, to what extent uh, might this affect? How passionate is their feeling? To what extent might it affect actually how they vote? Is it a single-issue vote for many people, or is it just something to be grumpy about but vote Democratic anyway? Well, I obviously can't speak for everybody in America on how they're going to Of course not. But I'm asking you, you're plugged in, Kim. You know, the pandemic just made very clear to every single American all across the country of all political persuasions, this is what happens when the government shuts down your ability to work. This is no longer theoretical to people the way that it was before COVID-19 hit, right? We now understand that the government can come in and say, you're not allowed to work anymore. And it scared the heck out of a lot of people. That is what this legislation actually does. So if, if you're a person whose career is caught in the crosshairs of this thing, if you're like me, you have survived this pandemic, you're building your business back up, how do you think I'm gonna feel as a voter if I have to go in and pull the lever for somebody who's saying, now nah, we're going to shut you down anyway. You know, that's not a good feeling, walking into the voting booth. And it's, and it's not a small thing that, that's being said. But now, the good news I'll tell you is when we walk into rooms with lawmakers, including Democrats, uh, who have voted in favor of this legislation already because it already passed the House, when we walk into the room with those folks, if we can actually get them into a conversation about the problems with the way this legislation is written, they listen and they, they seem to really understand that there is an actual problem. What, what we're up against is the head of the AFL-CIO coming out and saying, if you vote no, we're not going to give you a dollar or any campaign help in this election cycle. So, you know, you're talking about very big, powerful union organizations telling these lawmakers that they want this, and then you've got the everyday people like us trying to say to the lawmakers, hang on a second, this isn't okay, and the lawmakers seem to agree with us for the most part when we get in the room with them. It's our hope that as we keep just talking to them and lobbying them and explaining to them what the problem is, that they will work with us to correct the problems with the legislation. You know, this can be fixed if we actually want to fix it, and we have proposed fixes to it. It's just trying to get in the room and listen because we're not a big, giant organization with hundreds of millions of dollars to throw around at campaign time. But you mentioned some key points. You mentioned the profound, the, the disproportionate effect upon women entrepreneurs. And women entrepreneurs are collectively uh, a strong voting block, even if... It, 
even for women who are not themselves entrepreneurs, they would identify with women who are entrepreneurs. And that would, uh, that to me strikes me as an important campaign issue. It's very interesting because like the issue, for example, of charter schools, I'm not getting off message, but just an observation, charter, the issue of charter schools uh, also causes strange bedfellows. People find themselves allied in favor of charter schools who otherwise, uh, which is a opposition to democratic dogma, but they feel passionately about that. This is another one of those issues that readjust the alliances somewhat. It's quite interesting to me. Now, uh, also, what's also right, interesting like about this... I actually wrote a whole article about that when this happened. A woman named Elaine Pofelt wrote it. Um, it's, the headline was, California's AB5 leaves women business owners reeling. And that article talked about how women are the fastest growing group of business owners in this country. Um, the number of women-owned businesses is up uh, over 20% just from 2014 to 2019, and that's compared to 9% for all other businesses. So the notion, again, that this is about so much more than Uber. This is about how people, and in particular a lot of us women, are choosing to earn a living because we can succeed this way. We can be in control of our own destiny. This is, to me, as much about choice as any other issue. It just happens to be choice of how I want to work instead of choice about things like what I do with my body. And as I said at the outset, I'll remind our listeners out there that at its core, this type of legislation, AB5, then New Jersey, New York, although New York has backed off, and now Congress and Joe Biden, this type of legislation, this criminalizing freedom to contract how you want, uh, this denying freedom to organize your own work life the way you want, this protection from freedom um, is an issue that will could really uh, readjust some voting blocks. And also, what's also interesting, Kim, in my research, I, I found that there is such a group or such a collection of black business owners, black entrepreneurs. Uh, there are journals that whose appeal is to black entrepreneurship, and they are almost universally opposed because you didn't mention it specifically, but I know you're aware of it, is that while this impacts women profoundly, it also impacts minorities profoundly. And this is once again uh, denying minorities that first rung on the ladder of entrepreneurial independence. This is the easiest way to experience freedom and how you organize your work life. It's the easiest way. Just sign up somewhere and you get to experience freedom. And that scares the bejesus out of the unions. Yeah, a month ago, just a month ago, in the middle of COVID and everything, the head of the California Black Chamber of Commerce, the president and CEO of the Los Angeles Urban League, the people who are in the crosshairs of it in California, because that's where it went through so far, they came out just viciously attacking this legislation and saying that it is destroying, absolutely destroying the lives of black business owners, um, which, again, if this is... If your business is being put in the crosshairs of this thing, certainly I think you're going to take that into consideration when you step into 
to a voting booth. Oh, for sure. It's like getting between a mother bear and her cubs sometime in early October in Glacier National Park. You don't want to get between a mother uh, a mother bear and her cubs. Well, you don't want to get between an independent business person and their livelihood. That, that is, you get hazardous duty pay for doing that. Now, uh, L- L- Lorena, Lorena Gonzalez, who sponsored, who, who was started all this stuff. She was the chief sponsor of AB5 in California. Uh, She has been inundated with complaints, and there have been, I think, Kim, over 30 or 40 amendments working its way through the system as now the political process gets ugly, and you have subgroups such as yours saying, okay, you didn't think about us, so give us a carve-out. And some groups, the medical profession, accountants profession, have gotten carve-outs as the legislature says, well, we didn't really intend to capture you, so we'll let you out. So now we end up just like tax favors. Now it gets really ugly as subgroups, and I'm not trying to cascade you. I, don't, I wouldn't blame you for trying, but we have subgroups getting exceptions. So now... The legislature is dealing with one angry subgroup, such as you guys, Kim, in the media. we got to get you off our backs, so we'll give you a carve-out. Now, you go home. You're quiet. And so each subgroup has got to get their own carve-out, and you're left with the bill only regulates the people with less political power, which is painful me even to say, because now we have the most powerless group... I would say two things about that, Bob. One is, we are not actually asking for a carve-out. We agree with you. That is the wrong way to make law. Good labor law should protect us all. It's just that simple. What we are asking is that the rotten guts of this thing, this 1930s labor law test that they're trying to apply to us all here in the year 2020, we want to throw that out the window, um, along with a lot of other stuff that deserves to be thrown out the window from a century ago in this country. We want updated labor law standards that actually reflect the way that we work today. So we're not actually asking for a carve-out. We don't think that's the right way to make the law. And the reason we don't think it's the right way to make the law, the second thing I would say is, this is why the state of California is getting its pants suit off right now. Um, There are multiple federal lawsuits now against the state of California saying that this legislation is unconstitutional. Uh, on, on many reasons, there, there's multiple parts of the actual Constitution we can talk about, but one of them is the 14th Amendment, which is the Equal Protection Clause. It says, in our U.S. Constitution, you cannot favor one class of people over another. So when Uber, for instance, filed its lawsuit against the state, it came out and said these ridiculous exemptions to one type of business instead of other are absolutely ludicrous. And they pulled out an example from the law that, that in their actual lawsuit it says if you're a delivery truck driver who's hauling milk in the cab, you're good to go. You have an exemption. You're clear of this labor law. But if you're hauling juice in the back of the cab, well, now you're breaking the law. <laughs> it, well, that was right? starting to sound like the tax law. It's so stupid. That's a perfect example, Kim, and thank you for that, of the point I was trying to make, which, why milk drivers? Because they were politically powerful, and therefore they got an exemption. So it ends up being the law, we end up being an index 
of who are the, the groups that are politically powerful. That's not the way to make economic legislation based upon the political power of the group. You should do so based upon economic considerations. And what happens is the most powerless in the group, and remember the legislation is designed to protect people from being exploited. Well, the classic exploitation is if you don't have political power, you lose. And therefore, by all the carve-outs, it ends up, the legislation itself ends up exploiting the most powerless. And it becomes the the only evidence of exploitation is in the legislation itself, not in what it's trying to protect against. And that's the crime of all of this. Now, just to help you understand a little bit, we're running out of time regretfully. I'm having a great time, Kim. Um, and maybe you and I will continue this the rest of the day and the phone. Uh, who knows? <laughs> but uh, the uh, Lorena, Lorena Gonzalez pointed out in defense of her bill that, hey, these people are like free riders because they aren't paying, by not being employees, they aren't paying unemployment insurance, they aren't paying Social Security taxes, uh, and therefore they are free riders in our country. Of course, the answer is they also don't get unemployment insurance benefits. So you have made an election I like this lifestyle. I'll take care of my own, quote, unemployment insurance. I don't need government to force it upon me. I make a conscious decision uh, as a consenting adult. I will forego the benefits and forego the tax. Uh, and the other reason is, as you mentioned earlier, Kim, is that all of this legislation has the ugly taint of simply being one to reverse the decline in union membership. Union membership has declined profoundly about about eight or nine percent of the workforce in the private sector is unionized and it's down from like 30 or 35 percent uh, 30 40 years ago so union membership is on the decline it union membership is very yesterday and they are fighting like crazy to remain relevant and to keep a cash flow so this is about the government in effect getting more tax dollars and about unions getting more membership, both under the guise of protecting workers. Nonsense. It's not about exploitation, except the legislation itself. It's about enhancing unions and enhancing government treasury. Now, uh, t tell us in a word, um, we only have about a minute left, Kim. Tell us about your overall experience and the success you had in New Jersey. Have you driven a stake into the heart of the beast, or have you just won a short tactical victory, but more to follow? We have about a minute left. Well, we definitely won the first battle. We stopped the bill uh, we, we inside of six weeks from finding out it had been introduced and the lame duck session ending. Uh, we stopped it. Uh, it has since been reintroduced, but it has not moved forward through committee. And every once in a while, we let them know we may not have the power that you talked about of lobbyists in a room with a lot of money to throw around in the state house, but we sure do have the power of the pen. So they know who we are. They know that we're here, and we are ready to fight if they try to do this to us again. I must end every show, even though sometimes it's hard, on an optimistic note. Tell us your prognostication for the future of New Jersey specifically and New York and the country in general on this legislation. It is my deep hope that the people pushing this type of legislation will come to their senses and realize it's not just what you do, it's also how you do it. This is the wrong way to do what you're trying to do. 
it's just immoral. What are you being told sort of off the record, if you can, conversations you have had? What are the legislatures telling you when they're not on camera and being recorded? They're telling us that they understand there's a problem with the bill. We're trying to figure out how to fix it. Hallelujah. Well, Kim, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time and for sharing your experiences. You're doing God's work, as you well know, Kim. So thank you so much. Thank you again. Good luck in New Jersey, and let's wish us all good luck in Washington with this terrible pro-act legislation. Bob Zadig saying so long to now. A special thanks to Kim again, and I'll be back again next Sunday. Please have a good rest of the weekend.